Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next half an hour, cooking secrets of Italian grandmothers. Vicky Benison has traveled across Italy to collect some of their top recipes and has released them in her new book. I noticed that it was only older women who were making pasta by hand. And I thought, ooh, someone needs to make a record of that. Then we'll find out what is happening in the champagne industry and how people's tastes are changing when we meet the CEO and co-founder of Champagne, Frère Jean Frère. Some big maisons compare themselves to like a big orchestra. You know, sometimes they make millions of bottles and we do really the opposite. At Frère Jean Frère, we see ourselves as a small jazz band. All that, the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too, ahead in this episode of The Menu. Now there are quite a few things Italian grandmothers can teach about the art of cooking and there is a lot of demand for their advice, which is something that was proved by the success of Vicky Benison's book Pasta Grannies that was released some years ago. The book won a James Beard Award, sold over 170,000 copies and has been translated into six languages so far. Vicky has just released a follow-up to the book and its name is Pasta Grannies Comfort cooking. Vicky joined me in the studio to tell us about the book and how she ended up traveling in Italy looking for grannies who would share their recipes with her. I'm lucky enough to have a house in Marche, which is on the Adriatic side of Italy, facing Croatia. And I noticed that it was only older women who were making pasta by hand. And I thought, ooh, someone needs to make a record of that. And because of the physicality of pasta making, um, that meant film rather than writing about it. And in those days, there's this new thing called YouTube. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll put the videos there. And then um, the YouTube algorithms sort of suck you in. And instead of doing one every month, you find yourself having to do one every week. And and that is how the YouTube channel was born. I mean, you, if you go back to the very beginning of the YouTube channel, you can see there's one camera, that's me, and it's very rigid, and I'm, I'm sort of terrified because I hadn't picked up a camera at that point. Um, now I have two cameramen come around with me. But uh, so, so that's how um, Pasta Grannies was born. I thought, oh, we've got to kind of go around Italy and, and sort of film all these different styles because, uh, you know, Italy isn't unique in making pasta, but it is unique in its diversity of pasta shapes. And then slowly over the years, it's not just about the pasta, it's also about the women and their stories and, uh, you know, just their general demeanour, if you like. So that book, Pasta Grannies, became hugely successful. It sold how many copies by now? Do you know the number? Uh, yeah, it's around 180,000 for book one so far. And uh, it keeps on selling. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, now, now, now you've got a sequel out. It's called Pasta Granny's Comfort Cooking. What's, what's the concept of this book? So the, we've broadened out the recipes a little bit. Um, so it's not just pasta. The first book was about trying to get as many different styles and shapes into the book as possible. This time, you know, it's not just one lasagna recipe. There are four lasagna recipes. And it's partly a response to the pandemic. I, um, I say that people come for the pasta, but they stay for the grannies. People wrote to me regularly saying how uh, the channel was getting them through the pandemic. It provided reassurance and things like that. 
and uh, recipes like pizza and lasagna and those that they're familiar with, they're the comfort cooking. Those are the recipes that people want. So we've sort of broadened out the range of recipes in this book. And so you've got tiramisu and you've got really easy recipes and shock horror, even ones with dried pasta. Because <laughs> everybody has a packet of pasta in their cupboards. Are you able to name any favourite recipes you may have in this book? Um, so I have several. I'm very fond of um, the uh, chestnut um, gnocchi with a walnut pesto because that's absolutely delicious. And then also from Liguria, there's nettle uh, tagliatelle or tagliolini um, made with porcini and, and, and porcini sauce, and that's absolutely delicious as well. Amazing. In terms of what we get wrong about Italian cooking outside of Italy, what have you learned from these, these women? How important are those huge pots to cook pasta, for example, and all this talk about salt uh. and olive oil, all that stuff? How much do we get right and how much do we get wrong? So the, the overriding sort of reasoning with pasta grannies is uh, saving money and being frugal and making things last. So these big pots, these big pasta pots that you see on chef shows and stuff like that, you never, ever see in uh, domestic kitchens. They always manage to produce great pasta from mm, small to medium-sized um, pots because it's expensive to heat up a, a thing of water, you know. Um, so they don't. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things that you learn. And also take away one, a lot of sort of what I call chefy cooking, kind of add extra ingredients and, you know, forget them. You just want the key ingredients. They're very simple, but they just have to be, you know, spot on. They have, have to have great flavor and they're simple but exact. You have spoken to so many grannies for this book and for your YouTube channel. I have to ask, well, how do you find them? So I have a granny finder. Uh, she's called Livia De Giovanni. Uh, she's Italian because you need an Italian to close the deal, right? I mean, you can just, you, everybody can say no to me, but Livia persists. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the way we work is that we go, I sort of say, we have a conversation around, you know, we're going to Abruzzo, for example, next month. And I will go, oh, you know, what pastas are there? And then... She, we will look at um, what food festivals are there, who the sort of promotional um, organisations are, and we'll work through them to find actually the families first, because we always work through families. Um, our our signore won't ever actually volunteer themselves, so so they always have to be invited or persuaded to come on the show. How do they react when you ask them to do that? How how open are Italians? In order um, to, I have to, to say, share their recipes. <laughs> um, a lot of women say no. I mean, that's fine. I mean, you know, we've had people change their minds as we've gone up to the front door. Um, uh, so having got through that um, initial, you know, the families think it's a great idea, then most women are very happy to share their recipe. There's no sort of secret ingredients. They, they're very pleased that someone's paying attention, actually. Can you tell me about some of these grannies you've been speaking to and dealing with with some of them for quite some time already. What kind of people are we talking about? What have they gone through in their lives? So most of the women I interview um, have left school at 10. Um, I've been quite often helping um, their families. Often they're sort of, they come from Contadina, market gardener sort of uh, groups of people. Um, so they kind of have been working on the farm from about the age of five. In those days, everybody had to leave school to work on the farm. You needed large numbers of, of children because there weren't the machinery 
um, to <laughs> do the work for you. Um, so that, I think, is something that kind of comes through quite clearly is how the countryside has become depopulated <laughs> mm. uh, from when they were children, when it was just teeming with, uh, you know, the hillsides now wooded, but actually they had loads of villages in them and, and that kind of thing. It's quite a different way of life. Absolutely. Besides cooking, what else have these Italian women told you or taught you? Um, they've taught me um, about frugality and seasonality. They have, they eat everything, but in moderation. There's no exclusion. There's no sort of, you know, I'm not eating gluten or anything like that. It's, everything is on the table, but there's never too much of it. And when it comes to life, what have you learned from them? So the key to hitting 100 in good health is to um, never leave your hometown. Because <laughs> they've never, really, moved. You really, um, and at the same time, remain really plugged into your community. It's family, it's church, it's friends in the neighborhood, that kind of thing. And so when, when I hear people talk about the Mediterranean diet, I think no, it's, that's not, that doesn't capture all of, of good health. It's actually the Mediterranean lifestyle about this, this whole thing of how active you are. That's the other thing is do not sit down. Um, our grandmothers do not have comfortable chairs in their homes. I mean, they're always on the move. Uh, so, so that's that whole thing of being busy, being connected um, is key to good health. Mm. Vicky Ben is in there and her new book, Buster Granny's Comfort Cooking, is out now. Next on the menu, we head to Hungary to meet a winemaker who is helping raise the profile of the Central European nation's indigenous grapes. Born in Canada to Hungarian parents, Robert Gilvesi originally trained as an architect before being bitten by the wine bug. His love of the grapes saw him move to Hungary, where today he runs an organic winery under his own name, situated on the north shore of Lake Balaton. Monaco's Ivan Cavalia recently met up with Gilvesi at a wine fair to hear his story. Raised on a tobacco farm near Lake Erie in Canada, Robert Gervais's entry into the world of wine began in the early 90s after a crash in the Canadian housing market and the fall of the Berlin Wall. At the time an architect, Gervaisi looked for new opportunities and opted to visit the land of his ancestors. I came to Hungary in 1992, uh, not so much long after the, the wall had fallen, and uh, my first uh, idea was to look around for three-month stage, and I, I really loved the atmosphere that was happening there. Uh, we had a lot of young people, very optimistic, a lot of people internationally coming through the city and uh, looking for new opportunities and seeing just what would happen. So it was a very dynamic time, I mean, re- right up until the mid-2000s, I would say, very dynamic. And uh, the first few years, when I worked in, uh, in, in uh, Hungary, I worked as an architect. And my uh, colleague architect uh, took me to her country house, which is in the Cali Basin, a beautiful uh, country area nor- north of the uh, Lake Balaton. And uh, I fell in love with that area. And uh, I was looking for a place, and she was kind enough to show me the place where I eventually bought with the cellar, uh, which was a ruin at the time. So a perfect project for an architect, of course. 
and I was able to buy that by real uh, happenstance in 1994. I continued to work in another career, and eventually uh, I spent my years discovering more about wines, traveling, learning, spending a lot of time with my friend in, who's in the wine business in Hungary. And then in uh, 2000, and I would say it was 2009, I decided that I was going to launch into uh, renovating the cellar and uh, changing my life and moving to, the, to this region and starting to grow. I, I purchased some vineyards and then uh, started to make wine in 2012. Located on volcanic soils north of Lake Balaton, in the Badachonia Appalachian, Jovesi's estate is organically cultivated and focuses on native grapes. So in developing the winery, uh, I had to make some decisions, of course. There were a lot of uh, dilapidated old vineyards, which uh, could not be rehabilitated, and they were in non-economical plantings. And so I replanted nearly 14 hectare of grape, and I had to decide which, which, which varietal, of course. And one of the great ones I decided was Furmint, of course, because even though it's highly tied to the history of Tokai, it was a grape that was planted widely through our region, including our area, before Phylloxera. And I decided to plant it onto our mountain and see how it's going to do on these volcanic soils. Tokoi also being volcanic, but a different geological period. And, and this area being 8 million years old, I wanted to see how these uh, vines would make out on, on volcanic soils. Besides that, I planted a Riesling, which is also a great noble grape, and also connected to our mountain uh, from the 17th century, brought by largely uh, Rhine Valley immigrants into, into Hungary. And uh, those were the, my two major varietals. Of course, the, 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 the third big variety of our region and in Hungary is called uh, Olas Riesling or Riesling Italico, uh, and that I also grow. After 10 years of work, Jovesi has won over wine drinkers with his dry white wines made from formant, a grape best known for use in sweet dessert wines from Tokai. So now I'm pouring the uh, Varodi Furmint 2019 single vineyard uh, wine. It is uh, grown on the southeast side of our mountain, and it's um, a single vineyard, as I said, in multiple harvests usually. And okay, let me, let, me, let me just run in here and, and get the nose here. I'm going to have a little taste. Hmm. Hmm. Robert, I'm curious. So there's maybe traces of, of wood here. How was... How was this wine made? Yeah, you picked up very well. Um, uh, we do use, uh, in fact, this, this wine was fermented in uh, wood, 100% in Hungarian wood. Uh, the wood comes from the Zemplén region, which is uh, near Tokaj. What, what I find, and we don't use uh, uh, wood to uh, ferment or age all of our wines, but for the full meat, it almost, almost calls for a bit of this, uh, this wood to kind of round and, and develop its complexities. And for pairing to this wine, what do you what do you like to serve it with in terms of food? Well, personally, I'm, I've I've moved a lot towards Asian kitchen, so I do eat a lot of Indian and uh, Thai or, or or any Asian food that has some some spiciness and some some character to it. It, it works very well because ferment has a great body and acidity backbone, and that really kind of pairs nicely with uh, uh, Asian food. And what do you see in terms of the progress? Because um, the ferment grape 
obviously known in the past with, with Tokai and, and sweet wines. Where do you see the evolution now with, with, with the dry ferment? Where do you see it going? Well, dry ferment has been a challenge for Tokai, and, uh, but they're making a lot of steps forward now. And I think that with the... Uh, actually, a lot of change in generations and thinking about winemaking in Hungary you're getting much more adventurous uh, winemakers experimenting in different directions with dry ferment, and you're getting some really exciting solutions that are coming onto the market, I think, in the last four or five years. I think that if, if we continue this trend and we have the, the drinkers that are willing to experiment, because Hungary is not the, f- the first wine uh, uh, picked off the shelf in general, but if they're willing to experiment, I think they're going to be really pleasantly surprised. Let's next get an update on what the food and drink industry is talking about. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett with this week's headlines. South Korea has introduced emergency measures to deal with a shortage of kimchi, the country's favourite food. High summer temperatures led to a weak harvest and inflated prices for Chinese cabbage, the most popular ingredient for the dish. Two new kimchi crisis centres will now store and pickle cabbage to meet demand. Chocolate makers Lindt and Sprungli have won a major legal battle after a Swiss court ruled that their gold foil-wrapped chocolate rabbits deserve copyright protection. Switzerland's highest court ordered budget supermarket Lidl to destroy its remaining stock of a similar product. The decision ends a years-long legal dispute between the companies. Lindt has gone to court several times in recent years over the chocolate rabbit, one of its most popular products. Chicago could enjoy expanded outdoor dining permanently under a proposal by the city's mayor. The program was first introduced to allow hospitality venues to stay open while meeting pandemic social distancing laws. But new plans by Mayor Lori Lightfoot would allow cafes and restaurants to expand onto roads between May and October every year. A Japanese Wagyu has been named World's Best Steak at the annual World Steak Challenge. Meat producers Stars & Co. took home the crown for their steak, described as melt-in-the-mouth by judges. Australian firm Jack's Creek took home Best Ribeye for the second year running. Thanks, Lillian. You are with The Menu. Finally today, Rodolphe Réjean-Tetanchet is the CEO and co-founder of Champagne Réjean-Frère. It's a pretty recent player in the market, having been founded in 2005 and often considered a bit of a rebel in the industry with its focus on low quantity and high quality. Rodolphe visited Midori House earlier and we talked about the story of the champagne, people's changing tastes and how it was clear from the very beginning that champagne would have an important role in his life. So I've been uh, born and raised in Champagne. I have been baptized actually uh, with Champagne at two years old. That's a, that's a weird French uh, Champagne costumes. And so since we are kids with my brothers, we've been doing b- bicycles in the vineyards and we've been educated by knowing the vineyards and drinking Champagne pretty early. So yes, I have that in my blood since always, I believe. So at at which point did you come up with the idea of launching your own champagne? The point came really purely by passions. In 2005, we, uh, with my two brothers, we had those beautiful vines that we really love in the very specific area called Aviz. Aviz is, is in the Grand Cru area and it's 
for us, for my brothers and for many uh, wine lovers, it's a really uh, special uh, village with a lot of emotions, character. So we decide to speak about this, this area, you know, to make wine with emotions for us at the beginning, for the friends, for the family, more than selling them. And so since 2005, we, we've been starting uh, uh, crafting our, our wine of Champagne. You kindly brought a bottle with you. I think we should open it. Yes. Very nice. So tell us what we tell us what we have over here. So here we have a beautiful vintage called the Cuvée des Hussards 2012. I really want to go uh, quickly about this vintage because it's a wonderful vintage. We received 97 from Decanter. I think uh, we received 17.5 from Jensen Robinson. It's a beautiful vintage, but it's a vintage coming from a very difficult uh, year. And you know, the, there is something in Champagne which is quite amazing that we can produce great vintage from sometimes from struggling year. And 2012 was actually a very difficult year. What we, was it like? I don't remember. So in Champagne, it was very cold. We were under 20 degrees in February, so very cold winter. Then we had an early spring, very hot. So we went from under 20 to plus 30. And, uh, and in beginning of May, we had frost. So we came from 30 degrees to zero degree. So because of that, what we are drinking right now is really an echo, echo of this seasonality. And so that was really, really uh, insane. You know, vines are like humans. They are pretty lazy, uh, so they need challenge. And huh. so in 2012, there are a lot of challenge because of this crazy seasonality. But after those crazy, very uh, intense uh, change of temperature, we had a beautiful and hot summer. Not as hot as now, but pretty hot. So after this uh, struggling and stress, the vine have been able to relax and get uh, a lot of maturity and complexity. So 2012 is a beautiful vintage. And what I love is you have the these struggling uh, difficulties have been built sharpness into this Chardonnay. So a lot of precisions and uh, complexity. And then there is um, some Pinot Noir that we have been adding, just 15% of Pinot Noir that our chef de cave, Didier Pierson, had in 2013 during the Vin Clair. And we were not sure about that at the beginning. But uh, with his maturity, his experience, he said, guys, we have to add a little bit of Pinot Noir and you're going to see why. And 10 years after, in 2022, now we, we start to feel the Pinot Noir coming and expressing and bringing some structure. So it's a, it's a really lovely vintage. I'm wondering what it's like to launch a champagne. How do you set yourself apart from all the other brands there are out there? It's very interesting, you know, what you said, because actually creating our own maison is great because we can do our, our way, you know, and, and some big maisons compare themselves to like a big orchestra. You know, sometimes they make millions of bottles and sometimes they mix, mix uh, grapes who are 100 kilometers of each other. We do really the opposite. They see themselves as an orchestra. At Frère Jean Frère, we see ourselves as a small jazz band. And... 
you know, sometimes we love to play just a saxo. And sometimes when I say that is, for example, uh, we have a cuvee called VV26, when just speaking about one single parcel, a little bit like in Burgundy, you know. In this case, we really go back to speaking about one soil, one vines. Actually, the oldest vines from VV26 is from 1926. Those beautiful parcels, they have average aged 50 to 90 years, age in Burgundy barrels. In this case, we really do everything different. And we are really in a quest of making wine. Champagne is a wine of celebrations, but again, we, we believe it's a beautiful wine first. Rodolf, your first bottles hit the market about a decade ago. I'm, I'm wondering what's been going on out there ever since. How much has the industry changed and people's taste preferences and what the customers want? So we believe that there is uh, something I call the, the quiet revolutions in Champagne. The rise of growers, the rise of a smaller maison like, like our maison, who are coming back to the artisanal aspects of making wine and not just brand. I believe there's this huge shift in the way people consume, not just champagne, actually, for everything, I think, for food, for wine. for And people are looking behind the labels now, which is great, you know. Like, champagne has been built by those big brands who are very important also because they've been leading the, the, the appellations of champagne. But more and more, now people are starting to discover the smaller wine growers, the maison, the boutique, you know, and they are looking for emotions, character. And sometimes those big maisons are kind of like really standardized everything. And I, I think people are looking more and more for uh, specificity, for, uh, for emotions and character. And all of that, we're trying to make wine that are not standardized at all. And every vintage is quite different. You know, the seasonality of for 2012 is very different from the seasonality of for 2008. And they both taste super different. And we are part of that because every year it's different, you know. So, again, the big maisons are, le are led by the style of the maison. We are led by the style of the, the terroir and the seasonality. And as you mentioned, you are a small maison. I'm wondering what that means in terms of making people aware that you are out there. Yeah, so the way we're making it is first to have, uh, we are proud to have great restaurants working for us. We are the, the official champagne of the Michelin Guide in France since three years, so this is great for us. We work with more than 200 Michelin stars around the world. Uh, our main market is Japan, US and UK also, a great market UK. We are proud to be served in London at Classmiss, which is a fantastic three-star Michelin. Uh, but we, we work also with a lot of great uh, restaurants uh, who are not necessarily Michelin star, just looking for good food. We are targeting basically the, the same restaurants who, are, who pay attention to choosing a good bread or choosing, uh, you know, th those restaurants who are paying attention of not just looking for a brand, but looking for quality, you know. And so we are drive by quality. And we, I must say, we've just been selected by uh, Alain Ducasse to be on the first class uh, of Air France. So we are served on the, La Première of Air France, which is a huge achievement for us. Some other places like the Carlyle in New York or, or the Ritz in Japan. So we, are, we, we try to be uh, served in the good place who, who, who looking for quality. 
Rodolphe Franchon Tetanger, CEO and co-founder of Champagne Franchon Frère there. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand's new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippie. Our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Oasis with Champagne Supernova. Thanks for listening.